Yes, you're very welcome along to Thursday's Late Lunch. I put up the right fader today. You're with us here, Deirdre Hurley with you instead of Jerry Kelly. Uh, just for today, I'm sitting in the hot seat, but uh, Jerry will be back on the show with you tomorrow. If you'd like to get in contact with us, our WhatsApp or text number 086 658. And coming up on the show today, after all the horror stories of uh, surgery abroad, plastic surgery, bariatric surgery, dental surgery abroad, we're going to meet a woman who says bariatric surgery and other surgery has changed her life for the better, a local woman. We'll meet the mother of four autistic children who who trained to become a barrister and is going through her apprenticeship stage and says now she wants to use those skills to help other desperate parents. And we'll be talking about grief, the stages of grief and how to overcome it and live with grief with Pastor Nick Serb in a few moments' time. How the rain, heavy rainfall, and it is one of the wettest years on record. We've already had a year's rainfall uh, and it's uh, by, by the end of October so we're looking at one of the wettest years on record. But how is this impacting racehorses? We'll be talking to an equine therapist uh, in, a, in a short while. But first on the programme today, we're going to meet the Dundalk chef who has just smashed two Guinness World Records. And his name is Alan Fisher. And he's been making headlines around the globe after smashing not just one, but two Guinness World Records at his Irish-themed restaurant in Japan. Alan Fisher runs the Kyojin Stew House in Matsu and it now holds the record for the longest non-stop cooking for 120 hours and the longest non-stop baking record of 47 hours and Alan I hope is joining us because we're talking to him on the line here from Japan today so Alan you're very welcome to Late Lunch Hello, hello, welcome. 9,000 miles away. It's good no. to hear a, a voice from home. Oh, well, how are you? And congratulations, first off, because it's some record that you've broken. You've made headlines around the world. I was reading the Hindustan Times today online. I know, <laughs> I know, I know. My Instagram's getting slaughtered by uh, Nigerians who aren't happy about me, Brett. The, the ladies record yes you've taken a Nigerian ladies record but uh, it's a fantastic <laughs> achievement and I, I didn't understand I heard the headlines and then I read into more detail about what how you managed to achieve it and it really is some feat but first off I suppose I want to know why where did you come up with the idea of, of trying to go for this record where did you see it or where did you even you know think of the idea well, yeah, there was, um, uh, I guess, to give a bit of background, obviously anyone in the hospitality industry, I'm, I'm not too sure what it was like back in Ireland during the pandemic, but yeah, it certainly wasn't easy over here and it was um, uh, a tricky few years there, like just trying to, in survival mode, trying to stay in business. And we navigated it okay through until about Omicron last year around summertime and then I was just... I had a restaurant in Tokyo, a restaurant in Matsui, and our online store. And I was just hemorrhaging cash, uh, savings, not taking a salary, and still got to the point where I needed to take out a, a post or a pandemic loan just to pay bills, you know, and uh, with no certainty about what was going to happen in the future. So it was a very frustrating time, and I, I kind of carried that negative energy with me. It was not a very healthy thing to do. And uh, after a four-year hiatus, the largest St. Patrick's Day festival, uh, Isle of Ireland Festival, was held in Yoyogi Park in March. So I flew flew back to Tokyo. I had a rented kitchen car. And I stayed in the kitchen car basically for three full days without sleep. It was an opportunity to make some money, so I, I didn't want to miss it. So I just stayed there prepping as much as I could. And I remember over a can of vending machine coffee with one of the security guards who was helping me put, put gas into the uh, or petrol into the generator. I was going, this this has to be a leading record or something. So uh, we were looking it up on Google. And um, at that time, it was an Indian lady, actually, Lata Tandon. So maybe that's why it was in the Hindustans, because she used to have the record for the yeah. cooking marathon. 
And then uh, that kind of it, it slipped my mind until I seen that the Nigeria lady broke it, and I was like, "Well, why don't we do that later in the year? We do like a culture week here every year." So I just said, "Yeah, that could be a good thing to do and channel some of that negativity from the pandemic into something positive." And, wow! Um, so it actually was a pandemic-inspired yeah, idea, about, you know? Wow! Yeah. So let's get into the I suppose the the challenge itself. Um, I am interested to talk to you how you came to be running your own place in in Japan. But first of all, I suppose the challenge you, for the baking challenge to start off with you managed 47 48 hours non-stop what did you bake uh was it well i was actually thinking either the soda breads or carrot cakes because i do a lot of them here and um i didn't do it the carrot cakes because in the rules of the baking marathon it says you need to be working with flour constantly so for example if you make a carrot cake you're only making some like a cream cheese topping or something that's not included in the in the bit in the marathon so I said, well, let's just do the soda breads. But we did four different types. So we did a, a Flavin's Irish Oats. We did a multigrain, uh, just plain bread flour. And then also I did a pecan and a walnut soda bread. with some almond flour as well. So they were the four uh, soda bread recipes that got approved. You've got to get pre-approval for so much before you make the attempt. And then, um, yeah, we just turned them out. And Alan, this is all done by hand. I think this is what's incredible about it. You needed all this bread by hand. Yeah, averaging about 10 an hour. Yeah, my back was in bits after about 10 hours. I, I was like, I didn't really didn't think this through here. I can't stand for 48 hours. I'm six foot seven. So, uh, yeah, I, actually, that was the most diffi- most physically challenging thing. My back was so sore. Uh, I'm 41 now in January. So this isn't going to work here. So, uh, <laughs> thankfully, I just I just started sitting down when I was washing my hands. Just, even it was like a like a shower for my hands. <laughs> That's what kind of got me through that one. Now. Yeah, and then for the cooking challenge, again, I think probably people would be interested to know that it's it's mainly Irish cooking. So obviously, your restaurants that that you uh, work at in Japan in Japan are all Irish Irish themed and maybe Irish twists on things. So tell us in the cooking challenge what it was that you were cooking. Well, yeah, so again, uh, we needed to submit all the recipes, uh, the names of each dish, uh, what ingredients you'd use, what equipment you'd use in the kitchen, uh, list them all up and get pre-approval from Guinness World Records. So they approved 42 different Irish food recipes. Uh, we, we, we specialize probably in a niche of Irish food, like none of the stuff you'd grow up on, like your, your soups and stews and freshly baked bread. Like we don't use a fryer, like we'd, um, we wouldn't use a fryer, like for fish and chips or anything. We do more like kind of boxy and, and uh, fresh baked soda breads and mashed potatoes. Stuff like that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, everything everything along those lines, like the big thing in this Irish lamb, seafood chowder, stuff like that, shepherd's pies. And how did you manage to get to 120 hours of cooking? Yeah, I know. It seems like a dream. I don't know how. <laughs> yeah, you'll fancy doing it again. That's true. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, yeah, it happened. It happened. Once you started, I, I actually, def- on the very first day, I just kept saying to myself, don't embarrass yourself, Alan. Just keep going. Just keep going. Especially after 12 hours in, my back was so t- tired with the bacon. And you had some so, amount of uh, potatoes yeah, just, to peel. Just, you, how many How many did I read? How many kilos of potatoes? Was it 500 kilos of potatoes? You. I think we bought about 500 by Healed about three hundred. Uh, I had blisters in my hands. It took me. It took me a few weeks for my hands to heal. But um, that was actually interesting because of my back. I got approval from Guinness uh, World Records to sit down as I was peeling the potatoes. So on the first two days of the cooking, that, I was kind of excited about that. I was going, "Oh, I can't wait tonight! I'll peel the potatoes and get a break." So I was just peeling potatoes for the first few nights. But uh, after a while, as the fatigue set in, I started to nod off. I'd sit down and peel potatoes, and after a couple of seconds, I'd, I'd start sleep, nearly sleeping. So I filled a bucket full of water and ice and started dunking my head before I peeled the potatoes. Oh my 
my God. And that would give me a few minutes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd say you probably see um, yourself peeling potatoes in your dreams now still at this stage. Do you have nightmares about it? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Jeez. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So much food. Uh, I Like the, the amount of, I suppose, stones worth of food that you've created. So what happened to all the food after you finished cooking it? You're cooking for 120 hours. I presume you created a lot of food. Yeah, in total with the bread and the cooking, it was nine nine hundred and forty six uh, kilograms, I think, or something along those. Just under a one ton. Um, and again, before you do the attempt, you have to get pre approval from Guinness World Records for your human distribution plan. They call it. So there can't be any wastage. If there's any wastage, especially with the food, they'll disqualify you, which is a very tricky thing to do because even uh, you have to follow the hygiene standards of the, whatever region you're in. So if if I was to cook something like a, I don't know Dublin coddle, which is pork, and you're sit, letting it sit out for let's say you cook it at nine o'clock and it's sitting out there till the following morning and the, the health department wouldn't be happy with that. So they, I think that the cooking became more of a mental challenge, uh, just trying to read in the air. Like there was thousands of people, but thankfully it wasn't an issue. There was thousands of people waiting for food. But once you start, it turns out, you know, when you start giving away free food, people will show up to eat it, you know. <laughs> I but, know the feeling. <laughs> Come here. Yeah, the, tr- the trickiest thing though, the trickiest thing was actually now when, when I was say, just saying that, it was um, the breaks, just to give you a, a bit of back, for every hour you work, the Guinness uh, standard is that you get five minutes of a break. Uh, and they don't count towards your next break. So every day you get about uh, one hour and 40 minutes or 45 minutes. But if you want to, let's say you work 10 hours and you have a 50 minute kind of break accumulated. If you want to brush your teeth or change your clothes or uh, go to the toilet or grab any sort of rest, it has to be done within those 50 minutes. So that it becomes, a, uh, you have to manage what you're eating. And I was very de- dehydrated at the end. So I lost about 10 kilograms. Like Wow. Oh my God. So it is actually re- a real physical challenge. I suppose we, we were kind of stuck for time, Alan, but I do want to just ask you, like the Irish dishes that you create and, and among them are like chowder, coddle, stew, all those kind of home cooked meals that we all cherish so much. How do they appeal to Japanese palates? Yeah, well, they went down. We'd none left, thankfully, you know what I mean? So, uh, yeah, yeah, I think we've been doing it for nine years. Um, I, I do wonder sometimes in the blistering heat of August, I'm an Irish man in rural Japan selling lamb stew. I wonder what I've done in my life, but uh, in the wintertime, they sell all right. Mm, I'm sure, I'm sure it's the same as somebody coming from Japan here and setting up when we're all, I suppose it's something new and um, diversity. Well, listen, we wanted to wish you all the best from your from your home square. I know no, you're making... lovely, lovely to hear. Uh, you're making headlines across the world, so, uh, but every Everybody in Dundalk wishes you the very best and everybody in Louth too. No, thank you very much. Is there anyone at home you want to say hello to Alan before you leave us? Anyone that might be listening in? Yeah, mum and dad, Dorian Dorian and Joe, yeah, and all my family and friends there. Like, yeah, yeah. I wish I could get back more. It's been a tough few years, so I look forward to it. Well, we we, we wish you the very best. Thanks a million, Alan. Take care now. Have a nice day. Bye-bye. You too. That's Chef Alan Fisher, who's broke not one, but two Guinness World Records. What a fantastic achievement. And by the sounds of it, some kind of a physical challenge, not just a mental and cooking challenge, but physically almost broken. But he's done really well and uh, a good achievement. And I think the town can claim a bit of that, can't they? Chef Alan Fisher. Anyway, we're going to take a short break. But joining us uh, after the break, Nick Serb, who was due to join join us yesterday. He'll be with us uh, to talk about living with grief next. At some point in all our lives, we will experience grief. The loss of a loved one or the end of a relationship can trigger that giant of human emotions. So how do we cope with this overwhelming sense that life will never be the same again? Joining me on the line this afternoon is Pastor Nick Serb, who's hosting a seminar on grieving in Kells this evening. Pastor Nick, you're very welcome to the programme. 
Hello, DJ. Thank you for having me. I suppose, can we start talking? I suppose we hear a lot about the stages of grief um, and they're, they're quite well documented. But maybe talk me through some of those stages that people go through, you know, when they are grieving, maybe a death, or the loss of a loved one. Or That's right. I suppose in other areas of lives, it may not even be death, but it can be the end of something or the end of a relationship. I suppose um, one of the most important things you to, to to say about grief is that grief is a natural response to loss, to any kind of loss, whether it is your pet or a loved one, or even a job or or your health, um, a relationship, and and that sort of response will bring some unexpected emotions, things like shock, anger, disbelief, guilt, or sadness, and I suppose the first the first stage whenever we are confronted with these uh, very intense and disruptive emotions, is to first of all deny things like, this is not happening to me, this is not for real. And I I suppose in that stage, we all have to kind of learn how to grieve with dignity and hope, um, because in in a way, grieving is a very individual, uh, highly individual experience. It depends on your personality, background, even the culture, uh, present um, a, a, a unique way to grieve our life experiences, our faith, and even the intensity of that loss. And so, as we kind of process this denial, we, we move them into into anger. And 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 most of us, when we come to that place, um, we we ask the question, why? Why is this happening to me? Then, of course, we go into a bargaining bargaining stage where we kind of try to bargain whether it is with ourselves or with the people around us or even with God. Take it away and I'll do this. And making those promises, we can even go to the next one, which is um, a, a stage of depression where I'm, I'm too sad to do anything. I'm too, it's too heartbreaking to, to deal with it. Um, when then eventually we come to the last stage, which is acceptance or closure where um I'm at peace with what happened, uh, not just with what happened, but I'm, I'm, I'm at peace with my emotions and um, I'm happy with, with the now, creating a sense of new normal um, because grieving is not, you know, we, we often think that, that grieving is going to help us go back to normality, but the truth is that we have to create a new normal and that is a very healthy way of, of grieving, looking forward to the new normal. Mm-hmm. Um, How, have, have some people more capacity to cope with grief, Nick? Yeah, yeah I, I, think, I think because it's a very individual experience, um, it, it all depends on, 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 to, to the circumstances. And, and, and I suppose this is what we are trying to create within the community. We're, we're hoping to close this gap between people in the community and the mental health professionals where we create a space where people can share their emotions, they can reach out and, and uh, cope better with the pain of loss, whether it is um, uh, dealing with the reality of death when you lose a loved one, or dealing with the reality of losing a job, or, or, or even your health. Um, any, any kind of loss will have an emotional impact um, in in our everyday life, um, it is quite disruptive, and the greater the pain, uh, uh, the greater the impact. So, learning how to grieve that pain and being able to cope with that is is essential. And some of us are better equipped to do that than others, and 
And so what we're trying to do through these seminars, and grief is one of the five seminars we have done in Kelso over the month of October, is to create that space where people are equipped and, you know, we're trying to be as practical as possible, giving people tools um, to be able to cope better when it comes to loss. And, and what are those tools, Nick? Just give me an example, I suppose. You know, well, pra- a practical... A, a practical a practical example is, for example, one of the things that when people reach out and, and express their pain, um, one of the things that usually happens is that people are, are very genuine to help, but they, they feel awkward. And so, so one of the tools is to give, um, to give people that chance to, to express their awkwardness. Um, C.S. Lewis, a, a great writer, once said when after, after losing his wife to, to cancer, he said, I, I, I hate when people talk to me. I hate when people don't talk to me. So understanding that by reaching out, um, you extend a hand uh, towards people within your family, within the community that um, may not get things right, may not say the right thing, but as long as you understand they are trying to help is a good tool to kind of embed in your mind. Um, uh, sometimes uh, understand that, that pain comes in waves. Time doesn't heal, just times equip you to deal with that pain that comes. So um, whenever it comes to crucial moments, um, that seem to repeat annually when there is an anniversary, when there is a, a painful memory or a place that you visit that, that brings those memories back. Understand that pain comes in waves. And if you have a, a, a stand at the seashore and the wave comes in, it, it, it comes with a certain force, but once it passes you, it diminishes the impact. Um, another tool is to work towards that a new normal, finding peace in the new, and work for closure, for foreclosure, finding the peace in the now, um, where you are, um, and accepting that um, what happened cannot be changed for now, yeah. and looking for the new normal, um, looking for the, the new the new things that are ahead of you, um, not necessarily forgetting what happened because we can't. Uh, but being able to uh, form a new normality that will take us further uh, in our lives. Mm-hmm. For the people who are on the outside, for the person who's grieving, and those are some of the tools that you've talked about, But yeah. um, and you talk about that awkwardness that people might have and yeah. not knowing, should I say something? What's the right thing That's to right. say? Should I call? Do they want me to talk to them? Um, what's the best way, in your opinion, for, for helping someone, if it's a friend or a family member, and you're trying to get them through that, dark phase of maybe yeah. the, the anger or the bargaining what's the best way to I, help I, I think I think the best the best thing that we can do is to let them pe- to let people know that we're there for them and and, and and not just say with words but being genuinely available um, I think emotional availability is the best gift that we can give to someone grieving giving them the time and the shoulder to cry on maybe crying together uh, allowing them to express anger uh, without trying to explain or justify the emotion. Um, emotional availability is probably the best gift that we can give them um, without trying to justify anything. Mm-hmm. Well, we've just touched on uh, some of the topics that I know you're going to be covering uh, tonight in Kells yes. National Parochial School, 7 o'clock. Nick, right. uh, 
open to anyone that would like to come along? Absolutely, absolutely. Anybody um, is welcome to join us. Um, um, you know, we're trying to be as helpful as possible. Um, I think it's important for people to f- to come and find that safe space and find your comfort, whether it is from uh, the community, whether it is uh, from the information we give, whether it is uh, their own uh, faith and belief that God can take them through this process. Um, yeah, anybody is welcome. Good. Well, thank you very much for joining us on Late Lunch today. Pastor Nick Serb in Kells National Parochial School at seven o'clock this evening, if you'd like to know more. Yes, you're listening to The Late Lunch on LMFM. Now, LMFM and the ARC Cinema are hosting a screening of the Marvels in the ARC Cinema in Drogheda on Wednesday next, the 15th at 6.20pm. Carol Danvers, this is the new film, aka Captain Marvel, has reclaimed her identity from the tyrannical Kree and taken revenge on the supreme intelligence. However, unintended consequences see her shouldering the burden of a destabilised universe. When her duties send her to a wormhole linked to a Kree revolutionary, her powers become entangled with two other superheroes to form the Marvels. That's the pretext of the film. If you and some friends would like to go along uh, for free, all thanks to the ARC Cinema in Drogheda, all you need to do is text or WhatsApp in the words ARC Cinema followed by your name and location and the number is 086 1800 658 086 1800 658 your name and location uh, and the words ARC Cinema to be in with a chance of winning those passes to that special screening in the ARC Cinema in Drogheda. Now, my next guest is a mother to four autistic children and has spent most of her adult life as a carer for them while also being an advocate for their rights. And it's a no mean feat then to say that while doing that, she also recently graduated as a barrister and is currently serving her apprenticeship. What an asset she will be to the legal world. Carol Lennon, you're very welcome to Late Lunch. Thank you. Good afternoon. Tell us, Carol, we've spoken to you many times down through the years here on The Late Lunch and as you've been advocating for the rights of your children, why did you decide to go down the route of training to become a barrister? So it kind of all happened by accident. I was on Facebook because that's where I do a lot of the advocacy work that I would do with the disability community. And advertisements came up for the King's End, which is where Ireland trains their barristers. And it would be a lawyer for a day on a Saturday, go in and experience it. So I decided I'd go in. A lot of people tagged me in it. So in I went and I enjoyed myself so much that I signed up to do the diploma, which is a two-year course. And it's in the evening, so I could fit it in around the family and the caring. And lo and behold, we I did the diploma. And then there was a couple of other people who had the same notions as myself, you know, that they weren't pinning their whole future, their whole lifestyle on this, but that they'd be happy to continue. So a couple of us signed up to continue, and here we are. We continued, and now we sit facing one another wondering what the hell we're doing here, but we're here anyway. (laughs) It's a notoriously difficult career path. I think law really does. It's a very tough course to get through, and your plate was already full, really caring for your children, and then lockdown happened, and you had to try and complete your coursework during that time. Yes. So the kids all had to be homeschooled during lockdown. I think we finished on the 12th of March was my last day. And I got a text message to tell me we're not going in this evening for tutorials. It was a Thursday. I'll never forget it because I'm devastated because that was my break away from the family. And lo and behold, we never got back. And then they decided, the department decided 
that as well as being a student and a carer and a mother and a housewife and all the other hats I was wearing, I was now going to be a teacher, an SNA, an occupational therapist and a physio. <laughs> so I had great crack and I, I didn't get paid out for any of them. So that led to you, Carol, you had to get up at five o'clock every morning before the day's work yeah. started to try and get your coursework completed. Yes. I was up at five while the kids were still asleep. I used to get up at five and listen to the lectures from the day before. So they were generally two hours long before the kids got up out of bed. And then I was doing homeschool until about three in the afternoon. I'd one doing junior cert and one doing leaving cert at the time. And it was tough, really tough. But I mean, I don't know how I did it, but I did it. But you obviously enjoy it and you from that first day you got a taste for it in King's Inn. Now you've graduated and you've started a process which I never heard the term before, devilling. Explain I'm that to me. I'm a devil now. Well, my <laughs> mom would tell you I was a devil my whole life. But now it's an actual title. So when, you, when you're finished, when you're called to the bar, so you get called to the bar, you go into the Supreme Court, the Chief Justice calls your name, you stand up and you nod, they acknowledge that you're there and you want to continue. Then you sign into the book and there you are, you're at the bar now. Then you have to have a master. So a master is a barrister who has 10 years standing and has complied with the training requirements. And you pretty much work for them as an apprentice. So I got a master at four minutes to the deadline. And here I am. Well, well done to you. It's, it's, it's amazing. I suppose, do you think that, I know mean, we've spoken to you on so many issues, but do you think that's put you in good stead for for the course that you're going down now, the route that you're taking? Uh, absolutely. So an awful lot of the people that I would have qualified with would be younger people who came straight from college, straight from the leaving cert into college and then into law. So they don't really, they, you know, they don't have an awful lot of life experience where I have life experience. So I can read people. You know, I, I, I know what's happening in a room before I enter the room. And I'm able to hold me on. You know, I don't care if somebody turns around to tell me tomorrow I'm useless. Well, I'm okay with that because the buses need to be driven all over Dublin. You know, I could drive a bus if the barrister thing doesn't work out. That's the next. That's the next thing. <laughs> I think you're. I think you're absolutely amazing. I love your get up and go attitude to it. It's. It's. It can be. Um. I suppose. Well, maybe it has an image of that. I see you here now with the wig and the gown on. You look the part, oh, my lord. But I suppose it does have an image of. Um. You know, a, a, a snooty pro- profession. I suppose a barrister. It can be. Yeah. It can be. And how? And do I mean, this is how I got here in the first place. So I attended a meeting with professionals. And when I went to speak, it was in relation to one of my children who's autistic. And when I went to speak, the person that was chairing the meeting held her hand up, like flat hands to my face, to tell me this meeting is only for professionals. And I've never been so insulted in my life because there's nobody more qualified and more professional when it comes to my children than I am because I spent every minute of every day with them for years. Then I left that meeting. I, I refused to engage, withdrew all my consent right now, forget it. And then I thought, how am I going to do this? And I tried to get a solicitor to take challenge and sure, like, nobody's interested because you can't fight the department. So I thought, right, well, if I can't find the person, I'm going to have to be the person. And now I am the person. Be the change. Now all I have to do is find that person. (laughs) Get revenge. I know I'm joking. I don't do revenge. I'm a professional. I suppose, what is your goal? I I think you've kind of touched on it really, Carol, but your goal in, in... being called to the bar and going down this route and becoming a barrister, what are your hopes for your role? My hope is that I'll be able to assist people who are in the position I was in and that I'll be able to inspire people. 
that you don't have to stay where you are, that you can take one step at a time. And you don't have to be a genius. I mean, I am a genius, but you don't have to be. I know, I'm joking. I'm not a genius. I mean, I used to read magazines instead of books. You know, I mean, I don't think I've ever picked up a law book in my life. But there's always the threat that I might have to someday. But, um, you know, if, if people think they can't do these things because I don't have a second level education. I never did me leave there. I don't have third level. I don't know how to speak proper English. But sure, none of that counts because neither does anybody else. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. book, book knowledge counts for nothing when you're at the bar. What you have to be is able to listen. 90% of the work I'll be doing, it'll be listening and trying to pick holes in what the other person has just said. I only need to talk 10% of the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's what my goal is. I've just to been... get other people to come down with me yeah. so I have friends. Yeah, I th- I th- and I think that would be such a refreshing kind of perspective to have there. Mm. And this is it. I mean, I'm walking around with people and they're terrified, terrified to speak in case people judge them on their accent, terrified to stand up in case they're judged on their performance. And I'm like, ah, oh, here, couldn't care less. I mean, I'm wearing shoes that I wouldn't choose to wear, but that's about the only change I'm making. Well, uh, can I talk to you about your children, uh, Carol? Because yeah. I'm just reading, like, I mean, I, and I remember talking to you at the time when you, when you, I, I suppose if you want to tell us about, about the time that you reported yourself to Tusla in order to make a change. Yeah, well, this is it. I mean, my children see what I'm doing now and they're, they're well covered. You know, they, 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 there's no limits on what they can do because they say that there doesn't have to be a limit. You can do anything you want to do. So anyone can do anything they want to do. Some people will find it more difficult than other people. I mean, if someone said to me, you can climb Mount Everest, well, absolutely, I probably could. But I probably want to live now if I want my pension when I come back. No. (laughs) What are the positive changes that you've seen since becoming a parent for the first time? I suppose all through the years, your children are now going to college, they're in third level themselves. Are there positive changes, do you think, since becoming a parent for the first time and now? In terms of no. how people are you know treated. With- things have not changed. Mm. Things are actually getting worse. And the, I think, now this is simply my opinion, it's what I say, it's what I've experienced, is that the different departments, they pit us against one another. So they, they want the people, the low-income earners, to stay low-income earners. They don't want people like me to get educated. They certainly don't want people like me to be called to the Bar of Ireland because... God only knows who's going to have to answer to me now. You know, I mean, it's it's horrible. It's horrible to always feel like the underdog. But there's loads of underdog that's taking breath and moving on. I mean, I have significant amounts of friends who have seen what I'm doing and they were following suit like they wish to proceed to. You know, so that's that's where I'm at. I'm like, let's let's join hands and let's move forward together. Let's stop being limited by societal expectation. Mm-hmm. We don't need to do that anymore. Talking about that, um, Carolyn, it's something practical that you've come up against in terms of your apprenticeship because, as you said, you're a carer and that does impact on how many hours that you can complete and that's something that you would like to change is, is the yes. restrictions on and, carers. And I'll tell you, it's not un- I don't think it's unreasonable. Do you know, 18 and a half hours per week is what we are permitted to work or study or volunteer, Right. Now, it's not practical that we can attain skills in 18 and a half hours a week. That's why it took me a year longer than my peers. 
the complete degree. I mean, they say, oh, you must have been studying. And I'm like, no, my exam results would tell you I didn't study as much as I should have. So now, if I'd have studied as much as my friends were studying, I'd have passed them the first time like they did. But I didn't have the time because I'm limited to 18 and a half hours. Now, what happens? I don't know how much you know about carers around. But if you're a carer and the person you're caring for is terminally ill, right? Now, they're in palliative and they're going to be in palliative for five or six years. So you've left your job. You're caring for this individual for five or six years. And then that person passes. Within 12 weeks, you are off carers allowance and to get back into the workforce. Now, it doesn't matter how much experience or knowledge you have with medical or with whatever, whatever training you had to put into preparing to look after this person. None of it counts for anything. We've no qualifications. I mean, I found to look after medically vulnerable people from birth that are now in their 20s. They're more qualified, practically, than nurses and many doctors. And yet when they're finished, they're going to be job seekers. They're probably going to be put on a CE scheme making tea. Now, that's shocking. That's disgusting. And it needs to change. That needs to change. That's I just... mean, they've recently changed the pension thing where they'll give us a contributory pension if we care for 20 years. So we have to put in 20 years of work for €230 Euros a week so that we can get the contributory pension. I think it might be €15 Euros a week more than what the basic pension is. Like, they can shove that. You know, we're going to have to get another job, get a pension in it. Yeah, I suppose the attitude to carers or the appreciation that's shown, um, how do you think that we this... We saved millions. Mm. We saved the government millions. And I mean, it's gotten worse. That aspect has gotten worse because when young people with disabilities were in special schools, the government was paying for the special school setting. They were paying for the therapists that were provided. I mean, you only have to look at our, our local... CDNT, which is the Children's Disability Network. We don't have psychologists. We don't have occupational therapists. Um, from the best of my knowledge, what they're currently doing now is they're inviting the parents to a two-hour meeting, giving them instructions on how to do speech and language and occupational therapy, and then sending you on your merry way. So now parents are acting as speech and language therapists and occupational therapists and physiotherapists with no training, no payment, no knowledge, and no one checking that what they're doing is the right thing to do. And then guess who the finger gets pointed at when it all goes up in the air? Oh, that'd be the parents. Mm -hmm. Because we were refrigerator mothers in the 80s. We were tied to the children in the 90s and 2000s. And now we're therapists, failed therapists. We're failing at everything. We we graduate and qualify for nothing. We're carers. We're useless. And that's how I feel. Mm -hmm. I used to feel I don't feel that way anymore. (laughs) Well, I'm glad. I'm glad you don't because... um, only for the carers of this country would the country would come to a stop. I mean, if they weren't doing the, the work. And the but thing it, is, the mm. carers would love to bring the country to a standstill. But unfortunately, the people that suffer when the carers down till are the people that they're caring for. Mm. And this is what the government relies on. They rely on our empathy and our, our morals not to leave these people to die. And that's, that's what's happening. We don't leave the children in institutions. We don't leave them at home and cost, which is what was happening in the institutions in the 60s, 70s and 80s. We don't do that anymore. And we're being beaten with a stick for not doing so. Mm-hmm. Now, it's, it's too easy. We've had loads of CDs. Even the local CDs come out and spout nonsense about carers. They all tell us how great we are. And then they give us a kick in the air and send us on our way. That's not good. That's not what we should be doing. I have a feeling somebody else will be kicking ass in court pretty soon. 
wait. <laughs> well, Carol, I think your story, to be honest, is uh, is nothing short of inspirational for what you've done for your for your kids in your role as a mother, and now what you're going to do for the vulnerable, for those underdogs in your role as a barrister. Yeah, I wish you, I wish you all the very best with it. And yeah, brilliant. And you're such an inspiration to people who, who can, yeah, I suppose you can just stand up and say, well, hold on, in your, in your 40s, I want to make a career change. I'm going to go for this and give it a give it a lash. And you've done that and succeeded. Yeah. So well done to you. And if, I, if anyone wants to follow me down this route and they need want someone to show them the signpost, I'm happy enough to do that because that was done for me. And I really appreciate the people that were there with the light on the signpost showing me way. And it's my job to pass that on to help support other people down south. Okay. Well, we have your contact details here, Carol, and if anybody listening would like to get in touch with us here, we can I can join the join the two. Carol Lennon, yeah. th- thank you very much and congratulations on your recent graduation being called to the bar and we wish you the very best in your career thank ahead. Thank you very much. Now, it seems like this year there has been no escaping the rain. Indeed, already by the end of October, we've had a year's worth of rainfall. We've witnessed the impact of flooding on homes, businesses and crops. But believe it or not, the heavy rainfall is also impacting on the nation's racehorses. I'm joined on the line now and I believe he's right in the heart of uh, horse racing. He's in Willie Mullins' yard, Ted McLaughlin, an equine chiropractor who has worked with some of the best horses that we've ever produced in this country, the likes of Moscow Flyer and Honeysuckle. Ted, you're very welcome to Late Lunch. Thanks very much. Thanks, Deirdre. Thanks very much. Yeah, I'm, in, I'm down in Carlow at the moment and the rain has just ceased for the last... Oh. Uh, hour so it's been non-stop raining and that's uh racing is on in clonmel today the going description is heavy so you can imagine what we're going to be faced with for quite a lot of the winter i would imagine from now on absolutely and i know we've a big uh festival of racing in navin in the next couple of weeks and it'll probably be the same story then um, uh, what what uh, is the rain doing to race horses well, the rain the rain obviously horse winter horses you're dealing with uh, horses which are winter horses national hunt horses and they're heavy topped horses in the main, so they go on. Uh, they don't go on good ground. They like they like a bit of cut in the ground, like yielding soft ground. But at the moment, the gallops are uh, heavy. Their sand uh, gallops have to be topped up, and the uh, wood chip gallops. If you can imagine water lying on wood chip gallops, the wood chip starts to rot away. So therefore, it starts to get deeper and deeper and horses find it difficult to go through the ground at their leisure and then there's the build up of muscle injuries and other injuries which can ensue from that so it takes a lot of skill for the jockeys and the people working their horses to keep them balanced and keep them in one piece uh, going forward so it's a really tricky job for everybody in the industry basically How does it impact the work that you do Ted? In well, terms, yeah, their muscular build of the of the horses. The muscular build. Let's say um, these horse, winter horses have been in since July, so they're gradually, like a football team, they're gradually getting stronger and stronger and stronger. But as the gallops get deeper and deeper, they're starting to a uh, not go through the ground is easy. So they're leaning to one side or throwing their head up a little bit because obviously if the back end is not moving smoothly. The head carriage goes up in front, and they're Therefore, they can tilt their pelvis uh, in a number of ways, which means then they're going to be putting pressure on their ligaments and tendons, etc., etc. So then 
my job would be to just check them out to see that they're straight and realign their skeletal structure so that they can be on each diagonal, each foot on an even keel, so to speak. You know, left, right diagonal, right, left diagonal. So they're not overcompensating. And overcompensation leads to injuries going forward. So you're trying to get the structure corrected as quickly as possible uh, as soon as the rider puts them on on, on, on uh, uh, my list to fix them and therefore they can keep going in their training. So it's very important, not just for me, but for the physios as well, because muscle tightness will also be very prevalent in those horses. So it's a really tricky job for all of us that are working on the skeletal and and muscle uh, structures of the equine uh, athlete. Mm-hmm. Uh, many people might be surprised to know and, 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 and reading a bit about you and, and the work that goes on in these yards that there's a huge team of people involved in getting these horses to get them in tip-top condition not just I suppose the you know the, the ones we might expect like a vet or the groom but there's a, a, and, a, and yourself but dentists like there is a massive group of people that are involved in getting these horses in peak condition isn't there? Absolutely I mean it looks it looks easy when they rock up in, in the Dublin Racing Festival or it tells them and they, they win handsomely. But basically, from when they enter into the yard, some of them will come into the yard from pre-training. So that's the first step, that they're in a, a pre-training yard, you know, like say going like a human going to the gym for six or weeks before. Because on the, when they go out on their summer holidays, like we all go, you, they eat a, a, a good bit, there's good grass. So they put on quite a bit of weight. And therefore, that weight then has to come off when they enter there uh, before they come into the full uh, working uh, training system. So often they will go into a, a pre-trainer's yard, put them on the walker, maybe lunge them lightly, you know, keep them, uh, you know, tipping over at, at a low level and gradually getting the weight off. And then they will come into the racing yards, the likes of Willie Mullins, Henry de Bromids and Gordons, uh, Elliot, etc., etc. And they'll get checked out maybe by the dentist. They'll have the yearly dental checkup. Uh, that'll be the first thing that'll be done whenever they can get in. And then they'll start to do a little bit more fitting work. And then any problems that ensue, then the physios will come on board. They'll have a look at its muscle tightness because when you haven't been worked for a while, muscles will start to tight, tighten up and may not be my area at this stage but it could be more muscle uh, areas and then they'll start to be looked at by the physios and then then uh, the muscles keep on getting tighter then I'll be called in maybe even to check them even beforehand as well so and then obviously you just see what their weight is you know how heavy they are compared to last year so there'd be a note of that and then look at ones with uh, nutritional uh, differences that they'll have to you know some of them will be on different types of feed different types of bedding different uh, supplements so there's a massive amount of inputs by so many people to you know deliver an equine performance uh, you know at March in Cheltenham or wherever they're going might be Galway or if it's a lower level uh, goal etc so mm-hmm. it's it's a huge team by everybody What is it like when you have worked with these horses up so closely Ted you've worked with the very best what is it like to see them crossing the winning line at the likes well, of Cheltenham yeah, for me, everybody that knows me, I do get excited. I get overexcited because I'm very competitive. I used to be an athlete in my younger days and 
All I wanted to do was the winnings. For me, winning is the ultimate goal. I, I'm not interested in being second. Uh, if you're being second, fine. But when they cross the line, the work that goes in, a little a smile on my face and uh, thank you and uh, patting the jockey or the trainer. We're all sharing in, in that triumph. It's not just me, but for me, it's uh, I just really love the feeling of when they, all the work you know you've put into the horse that everybody's put in, not just me, but everybody has put in. And it takes all the inputs for that performance to materialize so it's it's really very rewarding uh, you know I'm, I'm doing the job that I've always wanted to do it's a hobby really but it's you know I love what I do so and it's it does make a difference to the athletes as all the the people I work for will testify as well as the other members I, I stress that I am a team player not just me it's really uh, it's really a lot of people behind the scenes as well but for me I love when they do get that line and they cross the line like galloping the Champ last March when he crossed the line uh, you know in a really career a best performance mm-hmm. that was really one of the highlights because they're so hard to win these races so hard so getting hard harder. I suppose just to finish up on, on, on the topic that we started with but given that the climate and we see it year by year Ted that the climate is getting wetter and wetter it's getting warmer and wetter is the way we train racehorse is going to have to change too? I would say uh, it probably is because you're not just having the winter horses, even the flat guys, the flat race, the Aidan O'Briens of the world. Obviously, you've had, if you take April or in Leopardstown, you had a couple of flat meetings called off because the ground was too heavy for flat horses, which is un- un- unheard of at that time of the year. So it's really, you know, uh, I think a lot of attention will have to be paid to surfaces and the fact that the I know the tracks are doing their best uh, with uh, trying to get the ground or putting on so much water, but even more attention will have to come because you're getting complete variances in weather, absolutely, completely, uh, you know, difficult for everybody. So it's a a huge, a huge uh, thing to look at going forward. And I would say yes. You would that will that will be a factor that will have to be looked at because it's becoming very tricky. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting, Ted. I appreciate you joining us on late lunch today, Ted, McLa- Ted McLaughlin. There joining us, an equine chiropractor, and worked with some of the very best horses that we've ever seen uh, grace race courses around this country and uh, across the water as well. But it's very interesting to see that rain the rainfall impacting on our national race horses. We'll be back in a few moments, Femme. Now, Louise, my producer, has just informed me that animal bars are being discontinued. Huh? Animal bars? Really? Yes, animal bars and Caramex. That's the end of them. You won't see them again. Those Caramex, I actually could take them or leave them. They're kind of a manky colour. Really? That colour is not good for a chocolate bar. But the animal bars, oh, my kids still love them. Little tinfoil wrapping and you find out what the little picture is. Anyway, that's a bit of just... um you know, by the by on this uh, lovely Thursday afternoon. Anyway, would you like the chance to win some great prizes each week from now until Christmas? We've got gift vouchers, a year of free cinema, PlayStation 5 or a holiday worth €3,000. Well, every time you spend €30 or more across any of the shops in Scotch Hall, you'll have the opportunity to enter Santa's shop and snap draw. This week's prize is €400 worth of goodies from Be Perfect Cosmetics and a glam session with the makeup artist of your choice in store and a 100 
€150 Euro voucher for the DV8 fashion store. All you have to do is upload a picture of your receipt using Scotch Hall's QR code and stay tuned to LMFM to see if you're one of the lucky winners. And we'll be announcing the winners of our ARC Cinema competition later on in the show. But it's time for some music. And how about the godfather of soul to set us up this afternoon with I Feel Good or I Got You, depending on which you want. But I think everybody knows it by I Got You. Yes, it's James Brown. Now, there's been an increasing number of stories in the news about people who have travelled abroad for surgery only to have life-threatening complications afterwards. Eight people indeed have died as a result of complications from surgery abroad. However, my next guest is joins us to tell us about her experience and how for her it was a life-affirming and overwhelmingly positive decision. Tracy Metcalf, thank you for joining us on Late Lunch. No problem. Thank you for having me. And I suppose we'll start off, Tracy. Tell us, what type of surgery did you have and where did you go? I had a initially a full gastric bypass in the Irmet International Hospital in Turkey. And why did you make that decision to go abroad as opposed to having it here? Because, well, the waiting lists here were crazy. The costs were crazy. Um, for that surgery alone, I, at the time, I was looking at about €16,000 which I just didn't have. Um, and to go abroad, it was it worked out for me €3,750. So obviously it was a quarter of the cost. Um, so that was a huge factor in it. Um, but I did do a lot of research and I spoke to my doctor and, and I had spoke to people that had gone to that particular hospital um, as well. So all of those played into why I went to Turkey. And how successful has the surgery been for you? I suppose, what was your initial goal when you were getting the the gastric bypass? It was to aid weight loss. Yeah, so I suppose for me, I was different in a lot of ways than other people that go for those surgeries. I didn't have food addiction issues or anything like that. Um, So in that way, it actually probably better for me coming home because I didn't struggle with that as much as other people that I know that went. Um, I had a lot of medical issues that led to steroid-based medication, which led to me putting on weight. So it wasn't a case, a simple case of diet and exercise to fix that. Um, so my, I, I basically went up to 18 and a half stone and I was miserable. So my main goal, yeah, was to, to lose weight. Like at that point, I'd lost all confidence. Um, I couldn't breathe. I, I just was really uncomfortable in my everyday life. So my main goal was to, to aid me in losing weight. Mm-hmm. And it was a success for you? It was a success. I lost around eight stone. Um, and I ended up going back again to Irmet to Dr. Forkin, who I had again researched and spoke with girls um, in particular who had gone to him. And I had my skin removal surgery there as well. And I actually went back the first time I went with two other people. The second time I actually went back on my own. Um, and that was never something in my life I thought I would be comfortable doing going to a different country for plastic surgery. Um, but because of my experience in Irmet the first time, I was comfortable with doing that that journey on my own the second time. Um, so, yes, yeah, so they removed £9.4 um, of skin. Wow. One of the areas, I suppose, that's criticised heavily when we hear these kind of horror stories is that aftercare is non-existent, that people, uh, you know, they go over, they are checked out into a hotel within hours of surgery and then the Irish Health Service is left to pick up the pieces. But that wasn't the case for you. Am I right? 
that wasn't the case at all for me. So with the hospital, I went to, as I said, a lot of research. There was a lot of things that I wouldn't have realised prior to even looking into this would be red flags. For example, I was explaining to Louise, some hospitals in Turkey, even though they do the operation for the same price, they don't offer morphine. So that's a red flag because they're obviously trying to save money on the morphine. Um, Some hospitals don't take into account BMI. Like you could have someone that has a BMI of 25, 26 that absolutely does not need that type of surgery and hospitals will do it. The hospital I went to, they have like limits of BMI. Um, in my case, my BMI was nearly 45, so I, it was severely obese. Mm-hmm. Um, so those things were red flags that I, I then learned that I needed to look out for. But I had to stay in the hospital for six nights. They don't, didn't allow you to leave. You had to stay there for the week. You're very, very carefully monitored. They absolutely offered aftercare and set me up with a dietitian that I today could still link in with if I wanted to and anytime I did have to link in with her she was very quick in getting back to me and liaising with me I never ever felt like I was just left alone um, with regards to Turkey with the the service in Turkey. Mm -hmm. Since then you've had um, breast reduction surgery here privately how did that experience compare to what you know you uh, you went through in Turkey I mean in terms of you know being looked after waiting list times? Uh, Honestly it was not great. Like I was on the waiting list for around four years publicly. Uh, the reason being there was kind of HSE guidelines of you had to lose a certain amount of weight. I obviously was in a situation where I couldn't just lose weight. Then when I did get placed on the actual admittance waiting list as an emergency, um, I couldn't get the bed. And they how they described it was that the, the bed manager just wouldn't release the bed for plastic surgeries. So it was kind of, I felt completely dismissed. But the reason I was getting that surgery was because of psychological trauma and chronic back pain. Like I had genuine reasons. So I kind of just felt like abandoned, to be honest. Um, And then it was just last December, somebody said to me, oh, maybe your VHI covers that because I've paid VHI since around 2010. So I looked into it and it ended up, it did, it was covered and um, that process was quite messy and lengthy of getting the actual everything approved but yeah I ended up getting it through my private health care um, but hospital wise there was just no comparison obviously I had Turkey to compare the hospital here with but the care everything the standard was just so much higher with where I went in Turkey mm-hmm. Um the surgeon here was absolutely brilliant and amazing like I couldn't fault him Mm. but the standard of care and the hospital itself was so much better in Turkey. It's it's funny isn't it and I suppose how does it make you feel then um, you know you hear these stories I mean does it make you concerned for what you've been through are you totally happy with your decision at this stage? I'm a million percent happy and you know like yeah like I'm I'm very content in what I did and how it's worked out for me, that's not at all to diminish that people have negative experiences. But I have come across a lot of people that have had negative experiences here in Ireland and I never read about them. And that was one of the things I said to Louise. I sometimes feel like there's a lot of biased journalism 
with regards to putting out these negative stories of travelling abroad for surgery. I am aware of so many positive outcomes of surgery abroad. I'm one of them. Uh, the people I travelled with, I travelled with two people, they were both positive. Um, and like I said, especially through my Instagram page, there's like a community of, I suppose, weight loss, bariatric and plastic surgery community. But I would have come across a lot of people, the highlighted issues they had here in Ireland with surgeries. And I I would never hear that. I would never read that or see it really on social media, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I'm wondering, Tracy, and it kind of it strikes me of the, I suppose you're talking about being dismissed or a dismissive attitude. Is there a stigma around getting this type of surgery and possibly, you know, the bariatric surgery or gastric bypasses is a shortcut or, you know, getting Absolutely. plastic surgery that you, yeah. you, you needed, you, you needed it, um, but it was seen, oh, I, yeah. yeah. Is there I a stigma around it, it do you think? Um, but there's a massive stigma first of all like I remember after coming back uh, initially and your whole lifestyle changes like you can't obviously eat you know I can't eat like other people eat like if I go to a restaurant I can only have a starter and I probably wouldn't even finish that to be honest Um, but it's the whole social aspect everything changes You're, you're quite paranoid as well that you know people know you've had this surgery but I think people think it's a quick fix and it absolutely isn't it's something you have to work on for the rest of your life you still have to decide what foods you eat like you know like chocolate and crisps they're called slider foods they're easier to eat than say chicken which is important for protein so you still have to make those decisions it is something you still have to work at and you know you still have to make sure you drink loads of water you know get your protein in all of those things the the surgery is just a tool to help with that but you have to have the mindset of you know i need to make positive decisions with regards to my health and my nutrition it's not something that's quick because i think you can easily come back and get into slip into old habits again for me that wasn't as difficult because i didn't have the food addiction issue and i don't really drink a lot either like i wouldn't be out every weekend having a drink um of alcohol which is quite sugary whereas other people struggled with that when they come back because you know, that's the lifestyle they're sure. used to. Um, but uh, there is absolutely a stigma attached to surgery in abroad in general anyway. But like, you know, I, I went to the hospital. I did end up having to go to Blanche Hospital because um, I think at that time my bell was blocked. I was just unlucky. Like, and that was probably because I couldn't eat properly. So I couldn't go to the toilet properly. So my bell got blocked. But when I went in, the head nurse said to me, why would an intelligent girl like you go go do something so stupid and travel to Turkey for uh, surgery? And I was really, really upset that she said that to me because, you know, I had gone there because I was making an intelligent decision for me that I had researched and looked into and I had spoken to my own GP about. And thankfully for me, my GP is so supportive. He's absolutely brilliant. Um, but I've spoken to so many people that don't have that support with their Irish GP or the hospitals um, here, you know, and that's difficult because at the end of the day, I'm still a citizen here. You know, I, I've paid tax since I'm 15. But I, I remember my GP, when we first discussed the surgery, saying to me, you know, the long-term effects of obesity are will weigh way heavier on me, excuse the pun, and the Irish Health Service than me having this surgery initially mm-hmm. you know so mm-hmm. I was just lucky with who my GP was and how supportive he was but I do know a lot of people don't have that support here um, and as I was saying to Louise 
it's just not reasonably costed here and the waiting lists are crazy here in general anyway in the healthcare system so you know they obviously that impacts on people's decisions on whether to have those surgeries here or abroad unfortunately Mm -hmm. and your means to do it Tracy it's been really interesting talking to you and thanks very much for for sharing your story because it's not easy to kind of uh, give those personal details so I do appreciate you coming on with us today no problem Tracy Metcalf there and her story a positive outcome for her. I know there are risks, but the risks involved, I suppose, in all surgeries that anybody undertakes. But um, ultimately for her, it changed her life for the better. Uh, we'll stay with us here on Late Lunch. We'll be announcing the winners of our ARC Cinema after three. And uh, we'll also be hearing about this viral song on TikTok. If you're from Navin, this could be your new town anthem. It's that good. It really is. I'm not uh, I'm not over exaggerating there, am I? But anyway, Cormac Moore, comedian, will be joining us here on Late Lunch After Three. But stay with us for News and Sport, which coming up next. Now, the winners of our ARC Cinema uh, screening passes are Irene Comiskey from Cooley, Lisa Collier from Termin Fecken and Mary Hart in Kells. So well done to three. Uh, we'll be in touch with you to let you know uh, all about those free passes. A chance to bring your friends along to the ARC Cinema in Drogheda next Wednesday, November 15th, for a special screening of The Marvels. So thank Thanks to everybody who entered and there will be one more chance to win those passes uh, on the show here tomorrow with Jerry. Um, coming up after the break, we're going to be talking to comedian Cormac Moore. He's no um, he's no stranger to uh, to the to radio stations. He, he's worked in radio stations across the country, but he's uh, gone into the world of comedy and he's making a name for himself. And a song that he's composed himself, which is done, I suppose, in the vein of Christy Moore, is called We're Navin. And it's gone viral on TikTok. We'll be talking to Cormac in a few moments. But first, uh, because it is uh, time for our top five countdown and we're in 1981. But yes, we're Navin. A song, an ode dedicated to the town of Navin has gone viral on TikTok. We'll let you hear it in a few moments. But first, we want to talk to the man behind this song, this hit song, comedian Cormac Moore. You're very welcome to Late Lunch, Cormac. Thanks very much for having us. How are you? Not a bother at all. Now, you have walked away from this neck of the woods, from this, from behind the mic, to something that uh, is a, you're probably regretting it a little bit. You didn't know how handy you had it. I've heard you quoted. Oh, yeah. So for some reason, I, I used to work in radio for about 10 years of my life. And uh, for, <laughs> you, you know, when you're doing something, you never realise how good you have it. You never appreciate the good times while you're in them. And for some reason, decided to say, you know what I need now? I need a real job. I need an office job. And I went working for a nine to five. Uh, and I left the, the studios and I left the radio industry to work in, in a serious job office. And I've just been sitting there ever since kind of going, oh, God, I really had that far too easy. What were they thinking? <laughs> the grass is greener kind of aspect. Anyway, <laughs> Cormac, I think we can all be guilty of that at times. But tell me, this ode that you've written to Navin, it's a bit of a love song to the town. You haven't left anything out. You've mentioned O'Mahony's. You've mentioned the China Garden. <laughs> you've got all the key places. If anybody's going into Navin, this, is, this song has hit the nail on the head, hasn't it? I think if there's a Discover Navin tourist board, I think maybe we'll send it into them to kind of try and t- touch off all the points. But I, I was trying to get all the main ones and I've, I've you know, a lot of friends and family who still live in Navin, I was trying to make sure I knew the China Guard was like the number one thing to get, and I knew O'Mahony's because I, I used to play against Navin O'Mahony's, you know, back in the day, underage GAA, and we used to always get hockeyed by them because they're obviously one of the best clubs in uh, in the country. So I was trying to make sure that every major landmark in Navin was ticked off in person. So I think I got hopefully got some of the main ones and didn't uh, upset too many people, leaving anything else out. You even got the balls on the ball. <laughs> 
mean, they couldn't leave them out now. Well, I did, I did have a laugh at that. I did have that was. <laughs> anyway, it's 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 obviously a tongue in cheek, and it's it's a bit of a, a bit of crack. And this is what you're you're doing now, uh, Cormac. You've turned to comedy, and you're giving it a go with stand up. So I've been doing stand-up for the last 12 years. Um, oh. As you know, like the apprenticeship for comedy is like, I'd say, 20 years before you start doing it uh, <laughs> properly or full-time. So um, I was going on a tour and I'm going to Navin, actually this day next week, so it's in the Royal Mead Bar next week if people are looking for, for something to do on Thursday night. Um, there, And I just thought, if we're heading to Navin, let's make sure that we kind of go in with a, a song and dance and, and, as you said, give a give a bit of an ode to the town. Absolutely. The, the name of your tour is Attention to Detail and you've deliberately misspelled the, the title. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, so as I said, when I was working, like I said, working in radio, right, we obviously just spoke for a living, right, so spelling and grammar didn't really matter. And when I went and I uh, working part-time now in, a, in an advertising agency that will remain unnamed, but one of the things I realised is that um, my spelling and grammar is, like, absolutely horrific. And I'm one of those people that just types out a sentence into Word and, you know, let's autocorrect fix everything. <laughs> um, when it goes red, I just, like, right-click it and go, there, job done. But um, I've been getting in a few, getting in trouble a little bit because I've been leaving letters out of words that I wouldn't pick up or notice. And I was managing one of the biggest German car brands, social media accounts in the country. <laughs> and then, was it last week when, when the clocks went back? Um, I tweeted out from their account saying, don't forget the clocks go back tonight at 2 a.m. But accidentally, um, I left out the L from clocks. So something completely different was tweeted out from BMW. <laughs> and we all got in a lot of trouble <laughs> for a few days. Oh my God. And the name of that brand also, I suppose, a bit of a pun there. Okay, we won't go down that road. But uh, <laughs> Cormac, so the, the whole, the, I suppose the theme of your tour is um, sweating the small stuff. You don't do it. You're not a man that likes attention to detail. And this has affected you in other ways. Tell us some of the ways that you do not pay attention to detail. Well, I mean, there's, there's loads of different things and I'm trying to obviously like get better at it, but it's a real struggle. I mean, one time um, I, I was trying to, you know, cut the grass out the back garden. It was the first time ever. It was during lockdown and I bought an electric lawnmower and I put the headphones on because, you know, as a millennial, we can't do anything without music and Spotify or whatever it is. So I went out and um, I wasn't really paying attention to what I was doing. And I was cutting the grass. Didn't realise that the back of the lawnmower was full with grass. Didn't realise that the blades were getting caught and stuck. And um, after about five minutes of cutting the grass and wondering why nothing was happening, um, the lawnmower went on fire um, and nearly burnt the, the entire shed down, the entire house down. Nice. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah, right. Okay. You didn't pay attention to your diet either and that caused you big problems. Oh. <laughs> yeah, 100%. I'm one of these people where I'm just like, food is, is amazing. Like, it's the only unconditional love in your life you'll get is from food because... It'll be, you know, it'll always be there for you regardless of where it was. But I had a really, really bad diet for ages. And um, I went into the doctor one day after getting a checkup at the start of the year. Um, and I got a blood test. And the doctor turned around to me and was like, listen, if, if you don't hear from us in a week or so, um, give us a shout. But the, the following week, I had heard nothing. And I actually um, realized that my phone was broken. And I had five missed calls from the nurse in the clinic who had got my blood results. And all five were from them kind of getting more and more panicked that they couldn't get through to me. And I went in and um, the doc sat me down. And it was like, well, it's, it's actually your liver. I developed a liver disease. Uh, and I was a bit like, oh, God, you know, you kind of hear that from the doctor and you get a little bit shocked. But like the Irish part of me was a little bit like really proud to be a stereotypical <laughs> Irish drunk. I was like, I drank myself to liver disease. Well done. But I didn't actually because um, it turns out I have a thing which is called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Okay. So I have the boring 
fatty liver disease, not even the cool rock and roll one. You got to, you got to, you've got to pay attention to the details. But the last one, and I think I really laughed at it when I read this. You didn't realise how attractive your wife found you putting out the bins. Didn't you know that is the call of all women around the world? We just want to see those men putting out the bins. You didn't know that, Cormac. <laughs> I, you know, as a young man when you're growing up, right, you're told to get a six-pack and hit the gym and go in three to five days a week because women, you know, love uh, a really toned, ripped guy. And it wasn't until I got married and we started living together that I realised that nothing drives a woman more crazy than taking the bins out, doing stuff around the house without being asked as well, you know what I mean? So I think I'm going to set up like a, a phone line for women if they want to be like uh, turned on where it's just me kind of going, I put the bins out the night before without being asked. <laughs> oh, it's very exciting, you know? So I never knew that. But now, now thankfully, I, I do, I do. Wait till you see what happens when you take that laundry up from the bottom of the stairs upstairs. That's your, it's going to open new doors for you. Cormac, it's been you a pleasure. Well. Sorry, just for, for cutting you off, do you leave the clothes at the bottom step and then your significant other just walks by going, yeah, no steps right over. Yeah, steps right over them, doesn't see them. <laughs> anyway, I, I want to get to this song I want to make sure everybody hears it. Cormac will be performing in the Royal Meath Bar uh, next Thursday, November 16th, doors 7 o'clock. So get in and uh, support this guy on, uh, in his comedy tour. Attention to detail. Cormac, it's been a pleasure. We're going to uh, have a listen now to We're Navin. All right. For lady, huh? We're Navin. I want a Navin with you. Oh yeah, now we're navin And I hope you like fake navin too Yeah, that's Cormac Moore and we're navin You can catch him in the Royal Meath Bar next week That's all from Late Lunch this Thursday My thanks to Louise Walsh who produced Eddie Caffrey's Up Next with The Drive and Jerry Kelly We'll be back here with you tomorrow from 1.30 Enjoy your afternoon Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. 